If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. In our lives, we experience many firsts. We experience the first time of getting on a school bus, perhaps, and going to school, waving goodbye to our parents out the window. Perhaps we get older and we get married and we experience, for the first time, welcoming one of our own children into the world. We experience so many things for the first time, but often they are only important to us. They're only important to our lives or perhaps our extended family, but today we see a first that has lasting implications, not just for our lives today, but for the lives of everyone around the world. For it is in our passage this morning that Jesus, for the first time, calls disciples to himself. These men are the first to recognize him as more than just a carpenter from Nazareth, And they believe in him to the point that they leave behind their lives and follow him in faith as disciples. And these are not just important to us from a historical standpoint, but they are important to us because in the the story that we see before us, we have not just the historical accounting of these first disciples, but what we also have is the pattern for all disciples. Not just for our coming to Jesus, trusting in Him, but for our continually living for and trusting in Jesus as His disciples. What Luke gives us then is very much the basic of the basics of discipleship, the essential way in which Jesus' disciples come to him for the first time and continually live for him. This is what we want to see this morning. So regardless of where you are, if you are a longtime church member and believer, follower of Christ, this is for you. If you are here and you are not a Christian, then this is here for you as it shows the way in which you follow Christ, receiving the forgiveness and life that we have been speaking about and singing about so far together this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 today, but our passage opens on Jesus himself. And Luke tells us this. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennariset, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked them to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. From the outset here in these opening verses, we see a theme that we have seen before in Luke's gospel, yet it's also essential for Jesus' disciples. Here we see that as disciples of Jesus, number one, we are to listen to Jesus. We are to listen to Jesus. At the end of chapter 4, we see Jesus declaring that he must preach the good news of the kingdom of God and that he did so by preaching in the synagogues of Judea. The result is the creation of a hunger in the people of God for the Word of God. For for so long, remember, that the Word of God was kind of held out at, at a distance from people. We saw last week how the typical teacher would just offer a litany of quotes of other teachers explaining what the Bible meant. Others, like the Pharisees, used the Scriptures as a means to rebuke others for their lifestyle and justify them in their own. But now here is Jesus come on the scene speaking directly from the word of God with authority and boldness in a way that does bring down the reality of our sins upon us. But more than that, lifts up 
the offering of God's grace to our lives. And therefore, and therefore it creates this hunger for more of God's word. It creates a desire in those who have been starved by false shepherds to hear and receive the bread of life from the one true shepherd. It's not surprising then to read that on one occasion the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. That reaches a point though where there's no one else to go. They're down on the beach with the lake of Gennaret behind them. This is simply another word for Galilee. And so it is the Sea of Galilee, which we'll hear so much more about in these Gospels, that Jesus is standing on the shores of. And the crowds are pressing in on him to, to hear from him. And he's, he's suddenly out of room. It's either go for a swim or find somewhere else to preach. So he opts for a boat. Luke says he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen have gone out of them or were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Isn't it interesting that Luke, if you've been with us from the beginning of our series, Luke has been pressing over and over again this very point, the importance of hearing the word of God preached and explained. And you have to wonder sometimes, right? Why God puts things in the Bible so many times. I mean, sometimes he puts things in the Bible over and over and over and over and over again. And you have to think, God, why did you do that? And my answer is because we so often forget that very thing. And God is reminding us, don't forget this, don't forget this, don't forget this. If any of you are parents, you understand. Sometimes that's how we, we talk to our children. Don't forget this, don't forget this, don't forget this. Because they forget it over and over and over again. And we're no better when it comes to God. We are tempted to not see the importance of God's word. For many, listening to the Bible, to the scriptures, seems more like a chore than a life-giving experience. It seems more like a religious duty than a spiritual experience. More like a tradition than seeking God's face. Not long ago, I was listening to uh, a preacher talk uh, on a, a, a podcast, and he was talking about growing up in a, a British context and how people of his parents' generation used to ask one another after the service, how did you get on under the sermon? And now those children grew up, and they would ask, how did you enjoy the sermon? You see the, the, sh- the subtle shift that has taken place. The, the change in language has, has reflected a change in their thinking. They've gone from thinking that the sermon was something that they needed. And in fact, they may have needed it so much that they might get knocked around a bit by the sermon. They might get, get beat up a little bit as the reality of their sin has been pressed upon them and upon them and upon them. And now the sermon has just become something to be enjoyed. Like afternoon tea, or some show on television. It's moved from being medicine for the soul to being a sideshow for our pleasure. But that should not be the case with us, especially for those of us that are God's people. We need to understand that hearing from the word of God is essential for our discipleship. Hearing the word of God is essential for growing as a follower of Jesus. God says that having eternal life means knowing him in John 17. Where do you know God from? From his word. Moreover, the faith to believe in him, the faith to know him, we are told by Paul, comes by hearing the word of Christ. Thus, listening to the word is not like listening to some ditty that you hear on the radio or on television designed to get you to buy something you really don't need. You need this. 
You need God. You need His Word. You need His grace. In the days of Simon, hearing the Word of Christ meant going to hear him preach. It meant coming alongside him, showing up at a party he was at and listening to what he would say at dinner. Today, it means taking the book that God has given to us, the, the very words of Christ in print, in a language that we can understand, in a format that is easily accessible, and reading it, studying it, listening to others proclaiming it, hearing Jesus speak to us today. The question, though, again for us is, how do, we, how do we come to the place where we actually want that and enjoy that? Because if you're like me, there is a propensity to ignore the word. To see it sitting on the shelf, to know I should be reading that, I should be enjoying that, but I find it difficult, and therefore I'm not going to pick it up. How do we move past that? I offer four Simple strategies for your consideration. First, pray and ask for God's help. Pray and ask for God's help. That might not seem that profound, but it is God's word and we are God's people and he delights when we are in the words, the word is in us. So pray and ask God for help. Ask him to give you a hunger for his word, an understanding of his word, and a willingness to be changed by his word. Secondly, make yourself read until you want to be reading. Make yourself read until you want to be reading. The reality is that most of us could probably use not a little bit more discipline in our life. And what we often find is that discipline leads to habits which leads to pleasure. I, I, you know, I, I try to convince my kids all the time, um, your taste buds will change over time. It, it, it's just, it, it happens. So try new foods. If you don't like it, that's okay. But I tried to tell them, you know, when I was your age, I, I never liked this. But grandma made me eat it over and over and over and over again. And guess what? Now I order that when I go to the restaurant. And they're just thinking, how in the world, Dad, would you ever want to eat that? Discipline breeds habit. Habits become enjoyment. Set for yourself a schedule. Make yourself read until you've got such an appetite for the word that you don't need the schedule anymore. I didn't ask them about this, and, and I may get in trouble afterwards, but I just wanted to name drop because I heard such a, uh, a great testimony that I, I wanted to share it with you. you should, if you find yourself struggling with knowing where to begin reading or, or if it's helpful or if you will actually enjoy following the schedule and not just saying, God, show me where to read today, then talk to Sharon Roseland and to Tracy Brubaker today after the service. She came up to me, Sharon did, a few weeks ago and said, uh, we, we've been reading on the, the two-year reading plan together and I absolutely love it. And I thought, I, I wish more people would be able to hear that. So now they have heard it and you can talk to her more about it later. Third, try listening to the Bible being read. Try listening to the Bible being read. One of the things we forget is that we are blessed beyond most of the world throughout history and even today by being able to read. We are a literate people. Do not take that for granted, number one. But number two, remember, the Bible is meant to be heard as much as it is meant to be read. Uh, most of the Christians throughout history, there would have been one person who was literate, one person that could read the book, and they would read to those hearing. And if you read, if you hear the scriptures being read, you can tell that is very much the way that they are meant to come into us. So buy some CDs with the Bible on it. Get versions that are dramatized if you need to. Find one of the several apps you can get for a smartphone that comes with a free audio Bible. Or simply read to yourself out loud during your devotional time. But try listening as the word is read. Finally, number four, come with high expectations. 
come with a high expectations. The book is not simply a collection of theological writings and sublime poetry and fantastic stories and ancient laws. This is God's word. The eternal God wrote a book. That in and of itself should astound us. But when you come to it, you should expect to counter God himself. Not because God resides in the book, but God speaks through the book. And so as David says in Psalm 19, we should come to God's word expecting to see our soul revived, our hearts rejoicing, and our eyes opening with understanding. We should expect to have our simple thinking become wisdom and our lives warned against sin. We should expect to better know God and be changed by him. That doesn't mean that every time we open the Bible in the mornings that Jacob's ladder will, will appear and there will be angels coming down from heaven on top of us as we read. Some mornings, I speak from experience, are not like that. But sometimes they are. Sometimes the verse opens and it is amazing the grace and the comfort that comes or the conviction that comes. But the real key is knowing not just after a day, not just after a week, but looking back over six weeks, over six months, over six years, where you once were in your relationship with God and where you are now as a result of exposing yourself again and again and again to the word of God. And the change is incredible. Your knowledge of God, not just as a concept, but as a person is incredible. Jesus' disciples listen to Jesus, but they also trust Jesus. They also trust Jesus. Now, some of you are fishermen or fisherwomen, people, whatever the appropriate non-threatening terminology would be. You can relate to Simon Peter here. Luke tells us that he was a fisherman. In fact, we'll see in a few verses he actually had a, he was a partner in a larger business of fishing. And despite all of the analogies you may have heard from preachers over the years in sermons uh, about evangelism being like casting a rod and all that kind of stuff, they didn't fish like we fish today. When I was growing up, my grandpa tried taking me fishing one time. Uh, I was pretty young, maybe four or five, and uh, we had uh, a, a very small uh, river uh, close to his house uh, under uh, a big uh, bridge. And so we, we drove down there and went out onto this beach of, of rocks and clay and we set up our folding chairs and he showed me how to cast the line in and to kind of tuck your, your hat down low over your brow and to slouch back a little bit and simply wait for the pull on the rod. Well, that lasted about 10 minutes for me. And I was wanting to start throwing rocks into the river to arouse the fish and then wade in and grab them with my bare hands. Uh, the idea of sitting and waiting and being quiet was, was not in my frame of reference, even for fishing. And therefore, my grandpa didn't take me fishing for several more years after that. That's not the kind of fishing that, that these guys engage in for a business. Simon's work was back-breaking. He and his partners fished using drag nets, huge reinforced nets shaped like semicircles stretching over a 100 feet. They would get out into the river and they would throw these things out into the river, these huge nets, and begin to let them sink down in the water and then hand over hand begin to draw them back in, hopefully full of fish. And they would do that over and over and over and over again. So if, ever, if you're just, as FYI, if you're ever watching a movie about the Bible or about the New Testament and you see the, the fishermen and they kind of look like girly men that uh, could be snapped like toothpicks, don't believe it. Uh, d- these guys were, were, were built men because they actually worked for a living every day, every hour of their lives. 
Once the fishing was done, they had to take care of their nets. Because if you had rotting, unworkable nets, you had no money because you would have no fish. So after working for however long they were working, they would have to clean the, 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 the fish scales and perhaps the fish guts off of their nets. They would then wash them off in the water and they would spread them out to dry in the sun. Now, with all that in mind, imagine being Simon Peter on this day. You've worked all night. Having finished up by taking care of your nets, beaching your boats, and perhaps having a little breakfast, and suddenly you hear Jesus teaching. And you begin to listen in, because you know Jesus. He's just healed your mother-in-law not long before this. You've, you, you, you've, you've went to actually hear him listen. And so while you're, you're, you're kind of finishing up cleaning your nets, you're listening, but then they begin to come down the beach as the people are striving to get closer and closer. And, and Jesus is kind of walking around as he's surrounded by them, and he's moving closer and closer to the beach. And, and then they get down to the very shore, and you see Jesus climb into your boat and say, Hey, Simon, can, can we cast out for a little bit? And you're thinking, Now I'm stuck. I mean, I, I, I like Jesus, I appreciate Jesus, I appreciate what he did for my family, but I, I want some sleep. I, I don't want to be up listening to another sermon. I want to go to bed. I've been working all night. In verse 4, Luke says that when Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took Nothing. Now just imagine again Peter. He's been preaching, he's been preaching, he's, he's tired, he's in the boat, he's wanting to make sure Jesus doesn't fall out in the water, and it's his boat, you never know what's, what a prophet's going to do with your stuff, and, and it's all done, and the people start to go home, and he says, hey Peter, let's go out, let's go out and let's go fishing. He's, he's thinking, no Jesus, no. I, I've been fishing all night, and we caught nothing. There's no fish to be caught here. What, what are you thinking? Some of you are basketball fans. I don't watch, watch much basketball, but one thing that was unmistakable when I was in high school was that Michael Jordan was the definition of basketball. There was no stopping the man. All of us wanted to be like Mike. I mean, the guy had his own gym shoes for, for Pete's sake. How could you not want to be like him, right? But imagine at the height of his game, some knucklehead fan who worked at a desk all of his life, coming up to him during March Madness and saying, hey, I've got some tips on your game that will ensure you a victory. What do you think's going through Michael's head right there? Probably nothing that we could say in church. But Peter is at least polite to Jesus, even respectful. He calls him master. He knows Jesus is no fisherman. He's a carpenter for Pete's sake. He's thinking, I'm sure I've been working all night. I've not caught anything. And you think you're going to tell me, let's go out and fish and get something? Nevertheless, what does Simon say? But at your word... I will let down the nets, Jesus, verse 5. So here Simon shows us that trusting Jesus, first of all, involves obedience. We should trust with obedience. There will be times when God's word is demanding of us. There are times when we will be reading and we will see direct commands given to us and we will think, I don't want to do that. That's going to make me look like an idiot. That's not going to work. there's no way that could be what God wants me to do. And the temptation is going to not obey the word of God. But Jesus still speaks today from his word. 
And if we are going to trust him, part of that trust is displayed in obeying him, even when we think we shouldn't. Now understand, this is not a call for a blind faith. No, again, think about Simon here and the example he is for us. He knows Jesus is trustworthy. He's followed him around and heard him preach. He's seen him heal. He's seen the way he he lives his varied life. So even when he is tempted to trust himself, his own wisdom, his own experience, his own desire, Simon instead trusts Jesus. Specifically, notice, he trusts Jesus' word. At your word, he says. At your word, I will obey. We trust Jesus with our obedience. And we also display trust when we repent. Therefore, we should trust with repentance. We should trust with repentance. They lower their nets. And in verse 6, we read, When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. The miracle of the catch is nothing that Peter expected. It is amazing. They bring in so much, the nets are beginning to pull apart. When they manage to get the fish into the boats, the the weight of the fish is so heavy, it takes the edges of the boats down below the water line. They start to take on water as they bob up and down, and the boats are beginning to sink, and they're having to bail water to stay afloat. It is amazing. But doesn't Peter's response seem odd to us? If we were in the boat, if that was our business, we just had this massive haul, wouldn't we be rejoicing? Wouldn't we be saying, oh, thank you, oh, thank you, God. This is going to feed my family for weeks. Look at this amazing thing that you've done for us. You've provided for our health. Now you've provided for our finances. Isn't that how we would think the response would be? But that's not the response that Peter gives, is it? What is the response? He is crushed, absolutely crushed by the realization of his sin. Why? Why does he respond that way to this miracle of the catch? Because suddenly Peter knows who was in the boat with him. You see, Psalm 95 says that the Lord is a great God and a great king above all others and that in his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountain also are his and the sea is his for he made it. And in Psalm 148, creation itself is commanded to praise the Lord for the great sea creatures and even the deeps were created by his hand and exist under his rule. Who made the fish that Peter and his friends just caught? Who determines their paths in the sea? Who made the very seas in which they lived and existed? The one sitting in Peter's boat. Thus, while Jesus was once simply a master, a sir, now Peter calls him Lord. Whenever humanity truly encounters God, we see it over and over again in the Bible. Some of us have experienced it over and over again in our lives. Whenever we have truly encountered God, what overcomes us the most is nothing but the sheer holiness of God's character and presence. 
Remember the prophet Isaiah worshiping in the temple when God transports him by the spirit, giving him a vision, not just of the earthly temple, but of the spiritual temple. And what is, what is Isaiah's response? It is not to, to say, man, this is great and join in the praise of the angels. It is to get down on his face as low as he can into the dirt and say, God, I, woe is me. I feel undone as if every fiber of my being is coming apart at the seams because I am in the presence of the most holy God. That's the response that Peter feels as well in the presence of Jesus. Get away from me, God. I am a sinner and I cannot stand to be in your presence. You are so righteous. You are so holy. You are so the opposite of everything that I am that I cannot stand to be near you. That's the the very place. That's the very place where Peter's at the most discomfort because of the impurity of his life that God's grace comes in the most profound ways to him and to us. That's when we truly begin to know God. For we will only truly know the grace and the mercy and the love of God if we first know the holiness of God. We will only ever really understand the cross of Christ, the death of Jesus by God's own hand, beaten and bleeding, but even worse, suffering unto death under the holy judgment of God against sin. We will only ever really understand that if we first understand the depth of our own sin in light of the holiness of God. It is our sin that causes Paul to write in Romans 1 that the very wrath of God is being poured out upon the whole world. Why? Because no one is ever good enough or wise enough or righteous enough to not be caught up in that wrath. You aren't and I'm not. Fundamentally, our relationship with God has been destroyed because of our sin. Because we have seen the glory of the invisible God and we've chosen to worship other things instead. Most often, ourselves. And despite that unthinkable tyranny against the one who made us, God has made provision for our escape of that judgment. And he's done that through the sending of his son. Jesus endured suffering for us, the suffering we deserve. He endured the judgment that we deserve by dying in our place. Why? That God's wrath might be satisfied against us, and therefore God might be able to forgive us. That's the high cost of our sinfulness, the death of Jesus Trusting is the first path, the first step in becoming Jesus' disciples as we hear the word of God preached and we see our need of forgiveness, obeying God by repenting of our sin and trusting Christ to be our Savior. That is, that is how we begin being Jesus' disciples. It's how we begin being Christians. But that's also how we continue to live as Christians. That life of obedience and repentance marks the entirety of our life as Jesus' disciples. Even as we grow in our knowledge of God and in our intimacy with Him and our holiness before Him, we never move away from this basic essential stance of trust that is seen in our obedience and in our repentance. Jesus died for his people, but he was also raised back to life for his people. Jesus is no dead savior. That's why we not only listen to Jesus and trust Jesus, but we also follow Jesus. 
We also follow Jesus. Simon is trembling in the boat, aware of his sin like never before. And in verse 10 we see, Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. When we encounter Jesus and all of his holiness and are tempted to flee because of our sin, we need only look back to Jesus' words, not just to Peter, but also to us, do not be afraid. For those who humble themselves and trust in Jesus, there is no need to fear Christ. In fact, Jesus calls us not just to trust him, not just to not fear because he has provided a path back to God without judgment, but to also have no fear as we follow after him. How do we follow after Jesus? It means doing two things at the very least. First, we follow him in mission. We follow him in mission. Notice Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid for from now on you will be catching men. Loved ones, this is the everyday bread and butter, always more but nothing less nature of living as a disciple of Jesus Christ. You are expected to be making more disciples. That call isn't for some super Christian, much less just the apostles. This part of discipleship is a call on all of our lives. Just as someone shared the gospel with you and you believed and rejoiced, so now you are to go and share that gospel with others that they might believe and they might rejoice. But here is where many Christians hit the wall today. We love Jesus. We are thankful for forgiveness but the thought of actually telling something about the, telling somebody about the gospel and telling them you need to respond lest you experience hell that scares us to death it scares us to death why in part because the culture has not made it easy on us the one thing they will not tolerate is the intolerance of telling somebody else they're wrong in anything you go into any any online forum or discuss an article online, the one thing you can't do is say, you're wrong. You can say, I think I'm right, but you can't say, you're wrong. And, and the same way with the gospel. All religions are, are going to be okay. You can't tell the Hindu they're wrong. You can't tell the Muslim they're wrong. Yeah, you can. Because the Hindu and the Muslim and the Christian and every other religion make certain claims about God that cannot be reconciled. God cannot both be Allah and Yahweh of, of the Bible. The, the Yahweh of Judaism cannot be both that Yahweh and the Yahweh who is God and Father of Jesus Christ. It cannot be possible. Both of us might be wrong, but both of us cannot be right. But we are hamstrung because we are fearful of being called intolerant. We are fearful of somebody not liking us. Can I, can I tell you that they killed Jesus? We shouldn't expect much less in this life. Sometimes, though, there are people that set the example for us. And they don't care what people think. They know this is the right thing to do and they're going to do it. I was reminded of this last week when I read an article. Some of you will enjoy this. Nine things you should know about Duck Dynasty. It was a good article. I learned some things I didn't know as a fan of that show, but my favorite part was the explanation that Phil Robertson, in some circles, that is the father, the patriarch of the family, he's considered, quote, the Billy Graham of duck hunting. How did he come to have that reputation? 
It started well before the TV show when Robertson had his first public speaking opportunity in the 1990s. He had been asked to come to the Superdome in New Orleans to give a a talk before 1,000 people on duck calling. After talking about duck calling and hunting for a while, Robertson reached into his bag, he pulled out a Bible, and he said, Folks, while I'm here, I think I'm going to preach you a little sermon. And that's exactly what he did. He went on to give a sermon about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the necessity for everyone to put faith in him to receive forgiveness of sins. What did he fear in that moment? Nothing but God himself. Nothing but God himself. He simply did what any Christian should do. Use whatever platform life has given you, God in his providence has given you, to speak a word for Christ. But perhaps we're not afraid of people. Perhaps what we're afraid of is failing. Perhaps we're afraid that we're not going to do it right. To quote one old preacher, you cannot mess somebody up more who was already so messed up they're going to hell. Unless you give them a false gospel, you're not going to mess them up anymore. Telling them about Jesus is only going to help them. And notice what we see in this passage. It is a living parable of what the disciples will experience. It is Jesus who brings in the catch. It is Jesus who brings in the fish. What did Peter do? He simply let down the net. And the same is true for us. Jesus is the one who gives success in evangelism. He is the one who opens minds and hearts by his spirit for people to hear and to respond to the gospel. He is the one who calls people to himself. He is the great shepherd of his sheep that calls the sheep into his flock. But he uses the preaching of the gospel to do it. God never commands God never commands that we save anybody. All we are commanded to do is to preach Christ that God may save people. That's the part that we should be faithful in. That's the part that we should be fearless in. Jesus shows that we should follow him in mission, preaching the good news of Jesus' kingdom just as he did. And the disciples show us by their response that we should follow not just in mission but in sacrifice. That we should follow in sacrifice. Up to this point, Peter and his friends have had a little distance from Jesus. Again, they've heard him preach. They've seen his life. They've saw his miracles. They've begun to consider his message and his identity. They have marveled and wondered at this man, Jesus. But now he's saying, follow me. Follow me. What is their response going to be? In one of the most dramatic moments of the gospel, Luke says, verse 11, when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. What did they leave behind? Everything. We know at least, at the very least, Peter was married. Maybe has kids. He's got a mother-in-law for sure. Maybe more of them were. They all had jobs. They just had this amazing catch of fish. What does Luke say? They left everything and followed him. Friends, family, the comforts of home, a successful business, and recent profits, they left everything and followed Him. Desires for life, ambitions and goals for themselves. They left everything and followed Him. And the call is issued the same for us today. Does that mean you literally today walk home, gather up your things, put a for for sale sign in your house, and, and go wherever Jesus tells you? It might. It might. But it doesn't have to mean that. In fact, for some of us, it's more difficult 
to stay at our house, to stay with all of our possessions and all of the things that God has given to us, but die to ourselves. To leave behind our wants for our life, our desires for our life, our plans and ambitions, and to know what Jesus' half-brother James said, and that is, your life is a vapor before God. And do not make all these plans about the future, not knowing what God has in store for you. Instead, instead, look to Him in faith, trust Him, and obey His will. So many of us live with all of the plans, with all of the aspirations, with all of the goals, not thinking a whit about the fact that Jesus will one day come. And how is He going to find us? Is He going to find us laboring and toiling and investing just for ourselves? so that we can be comfortable, so that we can be happy, so that we can be fulfilled? Or for those of us that claim the name of Christ, will we be seeking to advance His kingdom? That's the question. What what do we need to leave behind in order to follow Jesus? Perhaps, perhaps some of you need to leave lots behind. Perhaps some of you are engaged in a lifestyle that is soaked in sin. And today you need to turn away from those things. You need to give up friends. You need to leave a job. And you need to make a clean break. Because that's what Jesus is calling you to do. Others of you, maybe you, maybe your kids that you need to support. You need to put the for sale sign up in your yard. You need to look out to the nations that are out there that have no Christians, no church on the corner, who have no chance of hearing about Jesus in their lifetime unless somebody now goes and tells them. We have that calling on the church. It's not just to go in our neighborhoods, although that is certainly part of it, but some of us need to go to the nations where the name of Christ has never been heard. You walk down the street, someone's heard of Jesus even if it's buddy Jesus from the movie, they at least know something of this man. They know nothing. They know nothing. And some of us need to go. We need to go. Others of us need to be right where we're at and do a severe reality check with our lives. What is our priority in life? What are we striving for? Some of us need to give up much and follow Jesus. But how do we do that? How do we find the motivation to do these hard things that Jesus calls us to do? One simple thing. Gaze at the cross of Christ. We find ourselves struggling there. We only need to look and gaze at the Son of God as He hung there for us giving up fellowship with the Father as He was considered sin for us, giving up life itself as His blood drained for our atonement. We only need gaze at Christ on the cross, a man scorned and despised for us, a man who literally gave up everything, everything. Then we will find that there is nothing so valuable that we cannot give it up and forsake it for Him. It is my earnest prayer this morning that those around us in our neighborhoods and in our city, our children, even our grandchildren, will one day be able to look at us and say with the apostles, they left everything and followed Jesus. One of my nostalgic memories from growing up is of a hymn that we used to sing very often. 
that captures the essential message of our passage, the simple calling of Christ. Better than any other song I know, the words say this, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. Father, may that be the call that we hear from your son today. Not a call to play games, not a call to simply look to him for fire insurance or to feel good about ourselves or some self-help guru, but to see him as the Savior. And God, to see his death and his resurrection as being of such worth and value that we joyfully, willingly, give up everything to follow him, to treasure Christ above all things. But God, we can only do that if we start back at the beginning, if we are seeking the voice of Christ and listening to it through your word, if we are trusting in him, not just as our savior, but as our shepherd. If we are willing to hear his voice and obey, God, then we will be willing to follow in mission. Then we will be willing to follow in sacrifice. God, only you can bring about this change of heart, this change of mind. But God, we know you desire to do it, so we ask for it, God. We beg and we plead that you would do this work in our hearts, that you would begin this unfolding transformation of your people that would be willing to leave everything behind to follow Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.